Well, tonight we begin a study of the book of Titus. So if you have the Bible, please turn to the book of Titus. Now, we're only going to study the very beginning of the book, about uh, the chapter 1, verses 1. So this letter, before I start, I'd like to give you a little introduction, uh, a little background a little in context here. So this letter is next to the very last letter that Paul wrote to his friend and co-worker, Titus. So as in the case of 1st and 2nd Timothy, it has somewhat you know, of a similar purpose. So when Paul wrote 1st and 2nd Timothy, he was endeavored to strength to Timothy because Timothy is supposed to follow up on Paul's work. So Paul wanted to pass the baton to Timothy, and those two epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy, were to equip him for his future ministry. And the same is true as in the case of Titus. Here is another young man uh, who is very beloved, very close to Paul, and has also the responsibility to carry on ministry after Paul is gone. So Titus, as in stated in the uh, book of Titus chapter 1, verse 5, he was in the island of Crete. Right, so he has the responsibility there to strengthening out this church in the island of Crete and establishing leadership at the church. So however, there was strong opposition inside and outside the church in the island of Crete. So realizing that Titus had a very, very difficult task at hand as he faced many, many opposition uh, while, um, while consequently need this letter from Paul to strengthen him. So in this letter that Paul wrote to Titus, the objective is to instruct the church to behave itself properly. So before we dive in to, into this book verse by verse, let's, let, let me do an overview of these three, uh, three chapters. So Paul, in chapter 1, he wrote about the character and the conduct of the leader of the church. And in chapter 2, Paul wrote about the character and the conduct of his member of the church. And then finally, in chapter 3, he deal with the character and also the conduct regarding the church weakness, uh, weakness before the world. So again, the first chapter focused on the leaders, second chapter focused on the members, and then the third focused on those outside the church and how the church is to behave itself before the watching world. So this instruction are very important, not only to Titus and the church in the island of Crete, but also to all the church today, including Cross Life. Now, these three brief chapters are filled with rich doctrinal lesson, and we will learn this in the coming lesson. As we are going through some of the doctrinal of the faith, we will note tonight, you know, some of them, even from the very, very first ver uh, verse of chapter 1. So in addition to the doctrinal lesson in this epistle, there were also some very practical lessons that deal with the qualification for spiritual leadership and also confront sin and heresy and also spell out the spiritual role and the obligation of the believer in the church and in the family and they tell believer how to live godly before the watching world around us in order that we might have effective witness. 
So we also know that this is a, also a very, very compact, a very concentrated episode. It's like a pocket guide to life in a church. Uh, so when we started to expand this book, we will, see, we will start to see how this condensed epistle began to expand. So in the economic, economical sense, not a lot of uh, extra word, not a lot of extra word here. But yet, in the wisdom of God, even in, with a limited word, he can teach us a world of things tonight. So the book of Titus, the book of Titus will also show us how the people of a church relate to one another. All right? What this relationship looks like. All right? We will learn from Titus how this group function together. You see, as we come to church, we need to have a body mindset that we are connecting to one another. You see, how are we doing in considering others that we meet together at church? As we grow spiritually, we go from just attending church to investing in others within the church. Investing to others within the church. So relationships become more and more about other people, and it's not just about you. You see, the church family is where we sacrifice for one another so that we can all attain our goal in magnifying Christ and put him on display. Ken Hughes, a very renowned Bible teacher, write about this in his commentary. He said, against the tendency in our, in our culture in privatizing faith, make faith about ourselves. <clears throat> This expectation of the apostle reminded us that God is not intended for us to leave our faith alone, i.e. isolation from others. The wonderful personal benefit that come in our relationship with Christ, poor interests are not restricted to any one person. Our life touch others as a necessary consequence, either communicate good or ill, more or less of Christ, a mark of maturity in believer is a sense of responsibility for others in the church community. So, what, so that's what we're supposed to be about as we live together, as we start to invest to each other's life, both individually and collectively. We should all be growing to be more Christ-like and put him on display so that the outside world will see something different about us. So how do we make this work? How do we make this work? How do you avoid our own laziness in life and those things that hinder in our culture so that we can all grow for a greater cause for our Savior? So let us begin. By just looking at Titus 1.1 tonight, Titus 1.1, and you will see the, like, what kind of attitude that we need, uh, the, what kind of attitude that we need. So what kind of attitude that we should have if we are to make this work? Now the good news is, we see that the author of Titus, Paul himself, was an excellent example of how we should behave, 
how we need to view ourselves in order for this to work. It's Paul modeled this attitude perfectly, and we are going to see how. So tonight we will see how Paul is going to give us an idea of who he thinks he is, first of all, and then what he thinks his role is. So let's go to Titus 1.1. Titus 1.1. Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to the godliness. So the question for us tonight, how do you view yourself? How do you view yourself? The answer of this question would greatly affect how cross life interact with each other in pursuing a collective goal of worshiping our Savior. Tonight we are going to look at two ways that Paul view himself, two ways. The first, the first way, the first, the first point is, Paul viewed himself as submitted completely to God. Paul viewed himself as submitted completely to God. So let's look at how Paul described himself, okay, in verse 1. He started off by saying, Paul, a bondservant of God, or a servant of God. <clears throat> You see, for, for, for the Apostle Paul, what an interesting way to introduce yourself, right? In fact, Paul, in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 4 to 5, he said, I might have confidence even in the flesh. See, I was circumcised on the eighth day from the nation of Israel, from the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrew, as to the, to the law as a Pharisee. You see, knowing who Paul is, he could have really boasted about himself, right? Totally. I mean, Paul could have talked about how great he was. You see, he could have said, Paul, the person who had the greatest training in the law. You see, he, I, he could have said that I'm the rabbi who knows the law well. And Paul could have pumped himself up and explained how great he was. Even as a Christian, Paul could have flexed his muscle a little bit here, right? I mean, after all, it was Paul who wrote a good part of the New Testament. So he could have seriously bragged about himself here. But notice in very first verse of Titus 1, he described himself, Paul, as a bond servant of God, servant of God. It's in one sense, this is a great title, Servant of God. In fact, it is a title we will find in other Old Testament passage, like in Joshua 1, where we see Moses earn that title in his very last day, where the, the scripture said, when Moses, the servant of God, died. You see, here we see Moses, who was an excellent, excellent example of a man who is faithful to the very end. You see, Moses was faithful even when Israelite wanted to go to the opposite way. But Moses insists, no, we are following Yahweh. And then in the, at the end of the book of Joshua, 
Joshua 24 to be exact, we see that when Joshua himself is about to die, he also earned that title. As the Bible said, Joshua, the servant of God. Again, Joshua, who again is consistently remaining faithful to God. So we might think that of that title in a very positive way. But you know that is another translation of that word, bond servant, which is a slave. A slave. So Paul would see himself as a slave of God, doulos, the Greek word. And here it is describing a person who is unquestionably devoted to God. So we will see how Paul would humbly subject it to the will of God. But we should also remind it that slavery in the Bible's time is something that people don't necessarily always look down at. In fact, during the Roman time, besides manual labor, slaves performed many, many domestic service and might even employ a highly skilled job and profession. You know, professions such as accountant, doctors, are often slaves. You see, slaves of Greek origin in particular might be very highly educated, but, but they are still the unskilled slave, or those sentenced to slavery as punishment, you see, they work on farm or in the mine. But also, sadly, there are also many cases of poor people that have to sell their children to richer neighbor as slave in a time of hardship. So as a slave, they could not own property. They can manage property. You see, they have limited right because they are slave. There was no personal autonomy. You see, slave just cannot decide on their own what they can or cannot do. You see, slave is to follow what the master want them to do. They are individual submitting to others. They are viewed as property, as they could be traded and sold as property. So as a slave, you exist for one purpose, that is to fulfill the will of your master. But Paul, we see that this is an intelligent man that we just read in the book of Ephesians, right? This wealthy former Pharisee now see himself as a slave of God. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5, as the member of the Corinthian church said, well, I belong to Apollo, or I belong to Paul. And then Paul said to them, who is Apollo? Who is Paul? As we just servant, we are just servant, we are just slave of God that he chose to use us. You see, Paul indicated that I'm nobody. I'm not even my own person. I'm just the property of somebody else. That's how Paul viewed himself. Then in, in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 7, later, after Paul talking all those things that he used to be, he said, whatever things were gained to me, 
those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count all things to be lost in the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So Paul, when he got converted, he came to an end of himself. It was no longer about Paul himself. When he said, I belong to another person. My life is no longer about me, but I follow God. I'm a slave of God, and whatever his will, I will do. That's Paul. Now, we also have heard in the past, you know, especially in church history, other amazing example of faithful men, right? Such as uh, uh, one person I'd like to bring up as an example tonight is William Borden, right? The heir to a multi-million Borden dairy, you know, dairy estate. When he graduated from high school, <clears throat> he was gifted by his parents a trip around the world. Now you would think that your average 18-year-old would have a time of his life, right? But Borden, but Borden experienced a growing concern for the loss of the Middle East and Asia. So he wrote home. He said, I'm going to give my life and prepare for the mission field. At that time, in the back of his Bible, he wrote two words, no reserve. So when, and then he went to college while enrolling in, uh, enrolling in, uh, in Yale University. Borden promptly began a student ministry. By the end of his freshman year, he had 150 freshmen meeting for, for a weekly Bible study and prayer. And by the end of the senior year, 1,000 of the Yale 1,300 students were involved in this ministry. Now in his personal journal, he defined the source of his spiritual strength by noting this. Very simple, he said, just say no to yourself and yes to Jesus every time. Borden, beyond the campus of Yale, Borden was seen serving the poor, the handicapped, and the widow, and the poor in the poor section of New Haven, Massachusetts. He was often found in the lower part of the city at night, on the street, taking some poor people to a restaurant, seeking to lead them to Christ. Now, after graduation, after graduation from Yale, Borden declined numerous high-paying job offer, including a job from his own family's success, successful business, all because he had a growing sense of a call to, to mission. And that, at this point, specifically, he was focusing on the Muslim in the northwestern part of China. So at that time, he wrote two more words on the back of his Bible. No retreat, no retreat. After seminary, Borden set sail on one-way trip to China. But he stopped by in Egypt on the way to do some uh, Arabic uh, uh, study. <coughs> but while he was there, he contracted cerebral meningitis. And within one month time, the 25-year-old Borden was dead. 
So you might think, was boredom, ultimate death, a waste? Not in God's sovereign plan. You see, just prior to his death, he wrote two more words, barely legible, on the back of the Bible, right beneath those words, no reserve and no retreat. He wrote the word, no regret, no regret. You see, these few words sums up the heart of William Borden. He didn't live a long life, but he took advantage of every opportunity in his short time on earth to display a life full of faith, full of grace, and full of love for God and for others that God brought to his life. But if you are to ask him, who is he? I'm sure he would echo the same sentiment as Paul, that I'm just a slave of God, doing his master's sovereign will. So you might think that William Borden, Paul, hey, he's a unique guy. He's a unique individual. But however, their life serve as a perfect example for every single believer of Jesus Christ. As for every one of us, when we get saved, it is not just we change our mind about things, but we change who lose our life. We don't lose our life anymore. God does. See, we are slave of him. We should be willingly submit to God in all things. Now, let's turn to this next question here. How do we become slave of God? Because in the Bible, use the language like slavery of God all throughout. For example, in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, verse 18 to 19, there was some purchasing language here. The Bible said, knowing that we were not redeemed with perishable things like gold and silver from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefather, but you, but you were brought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as the lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So Jesus brought you to be his slave. And also similar language also echoed in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, which said, you've been brought with a price. You see, brothers and sisters, we have been purchased by God so in the heart of a believer, God brought me out of my bondage of sin. And now in response, I must submit to him as his slave. As my life now belongs to him, it is not my own anymore. However, for some people, this kind of language, I will turn off, right? Because slavery got a bad history, and we in the US, aren't we all about life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness? I mean, so for some people might say, these are just some of the reasons why I, I like to turn off 
or I, I don't want to be a Christian. I just don't want to be all in. They might say, God is asking too much here. God is acting like a tyrant, looking for slave. And we are living in America here. We are all about freedom here. If that's what your mindset today, like I don't want to be a slave to anybody, you might think that I'm my own man or I'm my, I'm my own woman. Well, I just want to tell you and let you know that the Bible said that we are all slaves of somebody. There is not a minute in your life that you are not a slave. Because if you are not a slave of God, the scripture said, you are a slave to sin. Do you realize that? In Romans chapter 3, when you talk about no one seek after God, no one want to obey Him. But right before that, the Bible said, we are all under sin. If you are not in Christ, sin control you. Sin will control you. Guess what? You think you can call the shot, right? When you sneak out a little joint or a drink, just because you can. That's not freedom. That's not freedom. You, you are controlled by your sin. Your sin owns you. Once you start, you couldn't stop doing that, even if you wanted to, in your own strength. You see, sin become your, your, your slave master. But good news, we can't be free from sin. We can't be free from sin. In Romans chapter 6, verse 17, the scripture said, Thanks be to God, though you were slave of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you are committed. And having been free from sin, you became slave of righteousness. Here we see that Christianity is not just from slavery to freedom. It's a Christ Christianity is that I have been bought by the precious blood of Christ. And Christ saw me enslaved in my rebellion. So by his grace, Christ showed compassion on me. He freed me from my sin and made me a slave of him. So we're all slaves to somebody, right? Do you really want to be a slave of sin? Instead, God had made us slave of him. So let me ask you, have your life act like a slave of God? Maybe in your own life, you act like you don't, you don't have a master that you're trying to submit to, and that you are your own master. But can you imagine this? Let's say when you are at work, all right, you're at work. You clocked in, 
and you spend all your time after you clocked in texting your friend or playing video game. That's just not right, right? I mean, because during that moment, you are supposed to work for the one who are paying you and doing what he liked you to do. But can you imagine if you're a slave of God and he's brought you with not just 20 or $30 an hour, but he brought you with the precious blood of his only son. So in our everyday life, our response should be like, Lord, how can I honor you in my workplace, at school, with my family? As we make plans for our career, for our marriage, for our family, are you trying to serve the master? We have to remember that we are nothing and that we are slave of this great God which we do not deserve to be enslaved to. Our second point tonight is how Paul, to, to the question, how Paul view himself. We, here we see that Paul view himself as a messenger of Christ, as a messenger of Christ. And we'll see that as he, he, he not only called himself a bond servant of God, but he also called himself an apostle of Jesus Christ, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to be an apostle? Two Greek words here put together. Apost, A-P-O-S, which means away, or, or off you go. And then stellium, which means to send. So the idea is the one who is sent off, or sent away, right? Or the idea is to send a messenger who is to deliver a message. Uh, that's apostle. So apostle, in a sense, in a generic, generic term, the apostle who is important based on who you are representing, right? So if you are representing me, you are not a very important apostle. But if you are representing the president of the United States to send a message, now that is much more important, right? Because he's a person of significance, who have authority and have some weight. So as an apostle, it carried this idea of authority, right? So remember, remember that this Adenal Creed was deteriorating, right? Because it doesn't have authority. So Paul began this epistle with the affirmation of authority that, that doesn't come from himself, but instead come from God. So to be apostle, God has to personally appoint you. It is a full authority that comes from God. You are sent on a mission to proclaim the message of God, and you are uniquely and divinely chosen as a spokesperson of God. And so to be an apostle, there are three key qualifications. <clears throat> Not just anybody can be apostle. 
but there's no apostle today. None. And you'll see why. And again, there are three qualifications to be apostle. The first one is that you have to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. You have to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. So please turn to me, if you have the Bible, to the book of Acts. We're going to stay on chapter 1 for a little while here. So please turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1, and look, jump straight to verse 22. In verse 22, we are going to see the first qualification to be apostle. So here, the context here is in Acts 1, is that Judas, the Ascario, who betrayed Jesus Christ, and then he committed suicide. And so now, the remaining 11 disciples are trying to, to, to pick another person to replace Judas. So look at Acts chapter 1, verse 21 to 22. It said, Therefore, it is necessary that of the man who hath accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So it's very clear here, right? You have to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Can you do that today? I don't think so. Anybody today be, be an eyewitness of Jesus Christ's resurrection? No. Because this is a very unique historical moment. That if you are called to be an apostle, you are an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. And then there's a second qualification. Let's move on to uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 24 now. Uh, so then these disciples who are trying to choose a new apostle, they pray, and then they said this. You, Lord, who know the heart of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen. You see, they put two possible candidates forward here. And then they said, Jesus, we want you to pick. We want you to choose. This is what they said in verse 25. They said, show us, show us which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So an apostle is someone who sees the resurrection of Christ and who also personally appointed and chosen by God. And there is one more key qualification to be called apostle. So the third one was that you need to be able to work miracle. Let's now turn to the book of Matthew, if you would. Matthew chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. So here we see that Jesus, he said that Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirit to cast out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And then, if you go to 2 Corinthians 12, 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, here you see a very clear, clear verse that show to be apostle, you need to be able to work miracle. 
First, Second Corinthians twelve twelve is said, the sign of a true apostle will perform among you with all perseverance by sign and wonders and miracle. So now you can understand to be apostle. These three qualifications, we see that apostle is a very unique office and that you are not going to find an apostle today. So the question now is, how is Paul an apostle? Right? When, he, when he introduced himself as an apostle and a bond servant of God. After all, remember Paul was born after Jesus ascended to heaven. You see, Paul was born in 5 AD in Tarsan city, south central Turkey. So how was Paul a, a servant of God and also an apostle of Jesus Christ? And remember this, Paul didn't start off that way either. In fact, he was the opposite of that. You see, Paul was someone who was murdering Christians all over Jerusalem, who was there when, when, when Stephen was stoned to death, and who was in his anger, was ready to, to, to walk, to travel 135 miles to Damascus so that he can kill more of those who are following Christ. So Paul went to great length to persecute the follower of Christ. But what happened? What happened when he was on his way to Damascus? That's when God revealed his son Jesus to him. In Acts chapter 9, Paul stated that he saw the Lord in a blinding bright light and then he fell on the ground. And he heard Jesus saying to him, Saul, Saul, that was his name before you know, he changed to Paul. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, to Jesus, when you're persecuting my follower, this is personal. You are, perso you are persecuting me, Jesus. And you can see this marvelous transformation in Paul's life here. It's in Acts chapter 9, verses 11. Jesus uh, said through, through a vision, he told a man named Ananias to pray over Paul so that he can regain his eyesight, which was blinded uh, by the light on his way to Damascus. But notice how Ananias replied. He said, Lord, why are you doing this? Why would you help Saul? And then in verse 13, Ananias said, I have heard from many about this man Paul, how much harm he did to your saint in, at Jerusalem. And what did Jesus say in response? In verse 9, I mean chapter 9, verse 15, Jesus said, Go. For Paul is a chosen instrument of mine, and he is going to bear my name before the Gentile and kings and the son of Israel. So Paul's life at that point on is going through a radical change. You see, he received clearly 
that it was the grace of God that saved Paul. Only the grace of God that saved Paul. I mean, Paul was clearly a wicked man who was ready, who was really trying hard to persecute Christ's church. And you see that it was not any good work that Paul had done. But instead, it was simply the grace of God, the grace of Jesus Christ. It was the grace of Jesus Christ that transformed Paul, which also should transform you and I. And if you claim to be a Christian today, it should transform your life. Is it something must change in your life? You should be a new creation in pursuing righteousness. Of course, it will be sin in your life. We are not perfect on this side of heaven. But if you claim to be a follower of Christ, your life should be transformed and you should be pursuing good work. Now, now this pursuing good work is not trying to earn the right standing before God here. But rather, if God save you, if God save you, it is finished. He said, you have been redeemed. You've been totally justified. His perfect and holy righteousness have been imputed as a gift to you. We saw that in Paul's life, and it should be true in our life too. So cross life, we are all representing Christ in our life. We are all a messenger of Christ. Although we are not a formal apostle, we are sent one. We are the one that is supposed to be the messenger of Christ. We are supposed to be the salt and light of this world in Matthew 5. Are we not? So how are you doing? How are you doing tonight? Maybe you can take these coming weeks to evaluate yourself. Is your decision in your life reflect about how much you really believe you belong to Christ? The very fact that we get to represent him, represent Christ, should cause us to repent and to cause us to want to obey him. Second Corinthians 5, it states that we, our role as Christian, are the ambassador of Christ. Do you realize that your job, your career, at school, it's not about you. It is about Christ. Your time at home is not about, it's not about you. It's about Christ. Are you living for Christ or for yourself? You see, I urge you that we, tonight that we should develop an attitude at Cross Life that is about Christ and also develop an attitude of being about others in the church. So let's close this, this passage with, with a passage in John chapter 13. 
In John chapter 2, I think it's a great example for us to end with tonight. Because in this chapter, we see that Jesus watched his disciples' feet. Jesus was going to lay aside his garment and take up a towel and wash his disciples' feet. And the scripture said, before the feast of Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour has come, that he would depart out of this world. So here Jesus, he knows the cross is coming very soon. It is very near. It's less than one day away. He is going to be crucified on the cross. And he's going to do the wrath of God for our sin. And remember, this is far worse than any physical pain that can cause by nailing on the cross. Because the wrath of God for our sin was going to put all on Christ. And that's much worse and much more painful than the physical pain that he endured on the cross. But before that, what was Jesus thinking about at that moment as he washed the feet of his disciples? What was he thinking at that moment? Just having to love his own Jesus who is in this world. Jesus loved them to the very end, even to the cross. You see, Jesus, knowing what he's going to face on the cross, continued to demonstrate his love to those who are his chosen one. And today, he's continuing to show his love to us. So ask ourselves, how can we be about ourselves? And how can Jesus at that moment be about others? Can we also be about others in our own life? How do you view yourself? How do you view yourself? Let us meditate on this ourselves.